Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. What a fascinating character John Pope Hennessy was. An Irish Catholic, a believer in home rule for Ireland, becomes Hong Kong's eighth governor in 1877. He's empathetic to the Chinese population who see him as a friend. This includes ensuring that local Chinese can buy land in Central. So while he's popular with the Chinese, John Pope Hennessy is hated by the British expatriate community. Author and China analyst Mark O'Neill has been writing about the history of the Irish community in Hong Kong for an upcoming book. So I sat down to hear about this man who was deeply flawed with a huge ego and not the best administrative skills. And yet, in certain ways, in terms of fairness for the local population and more humane ways of treating prisoners, was a man who was ahead of his time. What a fascinating character this guy is. I mean, it's quite an administrative background. He also had some rather eccentric quirks, but also was a, a deeply clever man, and uh, I would say a man before his time. Yes, that describes John Pope Hennessy very exactly. He is the most untypical of all the 28 governors that Hong Kong has ever had because he was greatly loved by the Chinese residents and loathed by all the expats. And the expats, of course, then controlled all the power and this would be the other officials and the, the business community. So it was very difficult to run a, a colony with that kind of relationship. So to understand who he was, we must go back to his childhood. He was the only Catholic among the nine Irish governors. He didn't had the same profile as, as they did. They were all members of the Anglo-Irish uh, aristocracy or upper middle class. They went to Trinity College in Dublin or they went to universities in England. And were or, Protestant? Or? They were Protestant. They mm. went to boarding schools. But he came from a very modest family in Cork. There were five sons. His father was a hide merchant. And they grew up in uh, the city of Cork. And the family was a nationalist, so they supported home rule, which, yes. <laughs> which of course, is against the mm. whole uh, concept of British Empire, which is that colonies and peoples need to be administered by this small elite for their own benefit. And, of course, he and his family didn't agree and believed that Ireland should have its own parliament and should have home rule. So, actually, under Queen Victoria at... Pretty much the height or just perhaps ebbing of the British Empire. You have the eighth governor is an Irish Catholic who is actually home rule for Ireland, which means he's, he's not exactly pro-British Empire. No, no. Anyhow, he, as a young man, he was a very, very smart uh, student. He won first-class honours in Queen's College in Cork in medicine. And then he moved to London. He started to read for the bar and he began to be interested in politics. And in 1859, he was elected as a candidate for the Conservative Party in what then was called King's County. It's now called County Offaly in Ireland. This made him Britain's first Roman Catholic Member of Parliament. So he was living in London and he was living far beyond his means. He had a mistress who gave him two daughters. He spent a great deal more than he earned. But he had one key ally, which was Benjamin Disraeli. Now, Disraeli is one of the most interesting people in 19th century Britain. He was of Jewish origin, but he converted to Anglicanism. 
but he was a very powerful figure in the Conservative Party and he, he became later Prime Minister. So this friendship between these two men was critical for Pope Hennessy. So he was trying to clear his debts. He met a very wealthy uh, heiress and uh, almost persuaded her to marry him. But at the last minute, she changed her mind. And that marriage would have cleared off the debts, but she refused. So in order to escape from the debts, he asked Disraeli to give him a foreign position. So Disraeli sent him off to a place called Labuan. Amory, do, do you know where that is? Because I looked it up before this interview, and Labuan <laughs> is, off, is off Borneo. That's right. I, probably it's the most unimportant <laughs> British colony at that time. But I don't it was, think... Would the Labuanians agree? No, I, well, I don't mean to be disrespectful to them, but, but uh, um, he, this was a place where he couldn't do too much damage. <laughs> so anyway, off he goes, and he becomes the governor of Labuan, and he falls in love with the daughter of the previous governor, who is of mixed race. She's half Malay and half British. And he marries this lady. And he then is given three other gubernatorial positions. That's Sierra Leone, Bahamas and Barbados. And he takes with him his home rule Irish nationalist thinking. So when he arrives in these places, what does he see? He doesn't see a smooth colony well administered by the British officials. He sees a large native population who are discriminated against, who don't have equal rights. And he, as far as he can, he tries to extend to them some of the rights and the privileges which until then only the, the whites have enjoyed. So in all these places, he is very popular with the native population, but very unpopular with the uh, ruling elite and the colonial administration. So in the final place he's at, which is in Barbados, we have a six days of rioting by black laborers. So the Barbados Assembly, which is controlled by the landowners and the colonial administration, they ask London to dismiss him and, they, and say he's unfit to be governor. So the colonial office in London supports his actions. He'd done nothing illegal, but realized that he can't govern the place anymore. So it's at that point, we're now in 1877, that he's sent to Hong Kong. So he arrives here in April 1877. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that uh, you know, it's not that the, the British government in London is saying, right, OK, who's suitable? Have we got a sinologist here or have we got somebody who could suit Hong Kong? But we've got sort of not quite failed in London, but sort of causing problems elsewhere. Oh, well, we'll send him off to Hong Kong. So is that the rationale? My, my guess would be that they believe uh, Hong Kong is a very efficient colony. It's well run. It's got a strong administration and that they will tame him. And also there'll be Murphy's Law, which is we've got this guy. We've got to put him somewhere. What's available? Hong Kong's available. <laughs> Can they just sack him? Y yeah, but that, that involves a lot of face, ah. loss of face. And remember, it was Disraeli who mm -hmm. sent him in the first place. And Disraeli is still a very significant figure at that time. I'm talking today with author and China analyst Mark O'Neill about the life of John Pope Hennessy, who was the eighth governor of Hong Kong. Now, we've learned that uh, he was... Uh 
born and grew up in Ireland, so he's Irish Catholic. Um, so very different from some of the other governors who we had, who were Anglo-Irish and Protestant. Yes, he's a, he's a colourful character. I mean, he's already left two daughters and debts, uh, <laughs> and uh, back in Britain, and then and uh, he ends up, as you say, marrying the half Malay, half British daughter of a previous governor. So yes, that would have been frowned upon here in Hong Kong at that time by the fellow Brits here. Yeah, I mean, as you know, the, there was a sort of, there was a colour bar. So the social life was entirely white. The, the officials married other white people, nearly all from Britain. So the first thing that everyone noticed, of course, when he came was that he had this wife who was, who was of um, mixed race. And he arrives here and he has the same experience that he has in the other colonies that he's at, which what he sees is a city which is driven by Chinese enterprise, Chinese hard work, and that the, the, the ruling elite have all sorts of privileges and advantages that the Chinese people don't have. I mean, it's very much similar to what he, it was in Ireland at that time. So he immediately tries to change this. He appoints a very well-qualified Chinese, the first Chinese at the bar in London, he appoints this man to be a member of LegCo. Then he goes often to the Tunghua Hospital, which was the center of Chinese power in Hong Kong at that time. And he goes to meet them, he meets the leaders, he engages with them very much. He opens the central business district to development by Chinese, and then they can live there, they can own businesses there, and they can develop it. And this causes a, a huge increase in revenue for the government because suddenly this land becomes very much more valuable. But, of course, many of the Europeans don't like this because they don't want to live with Chinese. So they then move to the mid-levels and then they move to the peak. And then legislation is enacted which bars Chinese from living in the peak and the mid-levels. He also changes the legal system. He considers the punishments for Chinese in Hong Kong barbaric and not similar to what is done in, in Britain. So, for example, there would be flogging of Chinese prisoners and they would be sent back to the mainland or they'd be sent off to Australia as, yeah. as labour. So he stops that and says they should go to prison. And these measures are very unpopular with the other colonial administrators and they're also unpopular with the Chinese business elite too. That they prefer the old, the old system. It's interesting what he does with prisons here actually because he, he actually is way ahead of his time. So they were sending these prisoners off to Australia often probably for sort of prison labour and uh, that was actually a key. It was an economic thing that, that uh, often they were being sent to Australia to, to go and work there and um, he was sort of empathetic to their situation but as you say it wasn't always popular he, another of his policies as you said was anti-flogging because there was still he was horrified to find that there was flogging and I think even branding mm. but uh, also the other one was that he was also um, looking at rehabilitation of prisoners as they came out or providing some sort of support for them and that was where he didn't score with the Chinese community. They, 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 at that time, there was no interest in that. I mean, he was bringing sort of liberal ideas from, from the UK to use here. And uh, as you say, they, they were not accepted by everybody. I think that's also an interesting point early on. I mean, he's coming here in 1877. And you've got a situation where they're still flogging in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is 
in terms of its laws, is actually behind what's going on in London. So, I mean, there's no more flogging in London, but it still occurs in the colonies. And that's a pattern that, that carries out, it carries on throughout, I think, the British, or all the time that the British has colonies, is that, that the colonies actually maintain more archaic laws. I think in more recently that would have been, you know, that homosexuality is illegal. That was one of the ones that uh, remained on the statute books in in uh, colonies and then, uh, you know, a lot later than they would have been in London and sadly with some ex-colonies they remained on the statute books. But going back to John Pope Hennessy, he's trying to be, as you say, he has this empathetic view. He's, he goes all out to ensure that he's also meeting up with Chinese business people, ensuring that they can also buy land in Central. And you'd have thought that some people would have liked that for about the amount of money, at least, it was bringing into the coffers. Yes, but remember the, the large uh, British companies, they had all, all kinds of business privileges on trade and they wanted to retain those privileges. So they regarded the Chinese companies with some concern because uh, once Chinese companies were well financed, well managed, they could challenge the British firms and perhaps replace them. So they wanted to retain their advantages. And, I mean, we've presented him in a very positive light, but we have to also say that his personality was really not suited to be that of a governor of a large and complex city and a port, as Hong Kong was. I mean, his personality was very flawed. He, he was arrogant. He thought very well of himself. He, he was quick-tempered. He didn't see Hong Kong for what it was. I mean, the Hong, Hong Kong was not at all a just place, of course. It was very unjust. It was run by small group of administrators and big companies. Now, maybe that wasn't what he wanted it to be, but that's how it was run. So if you're going to run Hong Kong and make it function successfully, you've got to work with what you have and change it according to the way it is. And he didn't see that. So he offended the other government officials. He offended the big business people. They didn't want to work with him. So it, it then became very difficult to run the colony efficiently. He wasn't good with details. He wasn't good with finance. So the administration was not functioning well. And I, I just want to give one story that illustrates this. He believed that his very glamorous wife was having an affair with a judge. I don't think she was. So one day he's walking on the peak with his son. He sees the judge there. The judge is much larger in stature than he is, and he attacks the judge <laughs> with an umbrella, and he injures the judge in the eye, but the judge is bigger, so the judge is able to sort of prevent the attack, and the judge seizes the umbrella and then keeps it at home in his drawing room as, as a trophy. So he hangs it in the drawing room, so whenever <laughs> visitors come and they ask him what, what, the, what the umbrella is, he tells them the story. Well, it's, it's comic, this story, but it's really... Inappropriate behaviour. Completely inappropriate mm. for, for both. Yeah. That the governor and a senior judge should be fighting each other uh, <laughs> uh, over a rumour. It's just ridiculous. Yes. Now, another thing he did was, until then, at parties at Government House, Chinese were not invited. So, of course, he considered this to be ridiculous. So he invited them. And... Of course, this is a good thing, but many of the white 
business people and officials, they, they didn't like this. They, 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 they opposed it. So, again, it was, a, it was a good thing he was doing, but it divided and angered the, the ruling class. So let's go back to this member of LegCo. Chinese name was Wu Tingfang. Now, Wu Tingfang is a very talented person. I mean, he, he, as I say, he was the first Chinese elected to the bar in London. And Pope Hennessy wanted to extend his tenure in, in LegCo to, for a second tenure. So he was there for three years. And he wanted to extend this. I mean, he thought it was ridiculous that LegCo should only have one Chinese member. It should have many more. And this was very much opposed by the white members. And on this issue, the colonial office found against him and said this man can only have one period of three years. And the argument was that if there becomes an issue with mainland China, by having a Chinese person in the room, it could be difficult in the future. So he only served the one term. But to give you an idea of the quality of this man, there were later financial difficulties in Hong Kong. He ran up a lot of debts. His reputation in Hong Kong was uh, ruined. So he left and he went to mainland. And in the mainland, he had an extremely distinguished career. He became the Chinese ambassador in Washington. He supported Sun Yat-sen for the revolution. So he then becomes minister of justice. He becomes minister of foreign affairs. And he ends up even being prime minister for a short time. So he was a man with great abilities. So if he'd remained in Hong Kong and if he'd been accepted by the establishment here, he could obviously have done many things here. But so I do, so I, my, my comment there is Hong Kong's loss was China's gain. Although he had to run from his debts by the sound of it. Yes, but, uh, I mean, other people had debts too. I well, mean, it's, it's, it does it, seem to be a running thing in your story, actually. You know, you've got a governor who's running from England because of his debts there and leaving kids behind. And um, it's not really useful elsewhere, but I feel sorry for all these tradespeople who are missing out in history. Yes, yes. In March 1882... Hennessy is finally given another posting in uh, Mauritius. And as you know, when the governor leaves Hong Kong, this is a very important moment, and members of the British business community, as a courtesy, will go and see off the governor and give him some gifts, some memorials of his time. And this is just the normal procedure. But the business community hated him so much that not a single person went to see him off. But by contrast, <laughs> the Chinese business community was so, so much in praise of him that they went in, in a significant delegation and, and they gave him pieces of silk and other gifts and they believed that he'd been an exceptional governor. Yes, yeah, so number one good friend. Yes, and they wished that other governors behaved like him and that, that they had a much better place here if governors were like... Pope Hennessy had been. I'm talking with Mark O'Neill about the life of John Pope Hennessy, the eighth governor of Hong Kong, and a very different one. So he heads off to Mauritius. Does he carry on? Because I'm also interested with his studies. I mean, first of all, he studies medicine. So does he qualify as a doctor or he just studies medicine? As studies a... medicine. He, did, he never practiced yeah. as a doctor. But then did he join the bar? No. no. Oh, I see. So he sort of interests himself in certain things but I mean obviously we would have gained the knowledge but yeah first of all medicine then then the bar and then he ends up in administration really or in, and um, so where does he go after Mauritius then? So Mauritius is his final posting 
So he retires in 1889, and then he goes back to Ireland, and he's elected MP for North Kilkenny. And remember, elect in at those times it doesn't mean the same as elect today, because the the number of people who could vote was very limited. So especially in Ireland, <laughs> in some in some of the constituencies, I mean, there'd be less than hundred people. You know, in other words, rich landowners, they would be the only people allowed to, to vote. So he goes home and he buys a big castle near Cork where, where he grew up. But he dies of heart failure in October 1891. But remember, he's got this very pretty wife and she was 18 years younger than him. So she was still young and very attractive. So she lives on in, in the castle. And then three years later, she marries a man 18 years younger than herself who lives in a nearby country house. So she does very well for herself too. His sons did very well in, in, in their life. So th that, I think, is, is a good demonstration of a man. If, he's, if his children have a successful life, it means he's, he's left something good behind. Well, it's legal ones. His legal ones, yes. <laughs> no, I'm going to let you off the hook completely there, Mark. Yeah, but now Pope Hennessy, when you look back at him historically, um, you know, pros and cons, and where would you place him in terms of how his personality, his, what he gave to Hong Kong? Well, I asked some Hong Kong historians about him, and their judgment is negative, because while they praise his ideas, as you say, progressive, well ahead of his time, very much wanting to involve the Chinese population in, in the government and listening to their concerns and make better use of their contribution to society. It was too far in advance of his time. And because the colony then was run by white officials and the big business groups, without their support, you, you can't get anything done. So they say that his, his rule here was... was uh, didn't achieve very much because of this animosity. So they, they say he was a remarkable individual, but in terms of his contribution to Hong Kong, it was quite limited. And you, what do you think? Well, I mean, he really shouldn't have been made a governor of anywhere. I mean, he really wasn't suitable for that. You know, he should have been an actor or a, a novelist or, a, or maybe a lawyer, yes, a barrister appearing in front of judges and giving excellent speeches which persuaded them. I mean, he had a man with a lot of talents. So I think it was a quirk of history and his friendship with Disraeli that uh, resulted in him having these positions. And, of course, the big tragedy was that Ireland didn't obtain home rule. Now, let us imagine he'd stayed in Ireland, he'd been a member of parliament, he'd campaigned for, for home rule. And if Ireland had achieved home rule and the British government had, had, had conceded it, we would not then have had the Anglo-Irish war uh, between the British and the Irish. We would not have had the Black and Tans. We would have not had the Irish Civil War that followed. And these very tragic episodes, thousands of people were killed, thousands of people left Ireland. I think home rule might have averted that. And you think Pope Hennessy could have contributed to that? Well, I mean, we're talking with great, great hypothesis. I mean, there were the many other great leaders of the Home Rule movement, um, and they didn't manage to achieve it. But, uh, yeah, I, th I think his talents were wasted as a governor. 
and could have been put to better use elsewhere. My thanks to author and China analyst Mark O'Neill talking there on the life of John Pope Hennessy, who was the eighth governor of Hong Kong and was here from 1877 to 1882. What an interesting governor, if a flawed one. I've been enjoying reading several accounts on Pope Hennessy, including in the Hong Kong history website, grulo.com, which details how even his father-in-law didn't like him. And after the incident with the umbrella, comes to the aid of his daughter in Hong Kong, but refuses to stay at Government House. There's also a list of top officials who find ways to leave his employ or distance themselves from direct contact with him in their daily working lives. So he was obviously a difficult character to work alongside. If you'd like to read further on the colourful and interesting life of John Pope Hennessy and his views on prison reform, rights for Chinese, Mauritians and Irish, among others, then do take a look at a recent biography of him by Kevin McEwen, published by City University of Hong Kong Press and called A Stormy Petrel, The Life and Times of John Pope Hennessy. Next week, I'll be joining Dr. Kwong Chi Man, Assistant Professor of History at Baptist University, who, with colleagues and some tech wizardry at the university, has created an interactive map of the Battle of Hong Kong in December 1941. It really is impressive and involved input from historians, hikers, artefact enthusiasts and a huge amount of work. The map is actually several layers, so you can see what's across Hong Kong Island, the New Territories and Kowloon, as shown by the British and Japanese military maps at the time, or now with the MTR lines. You can see a minute-by-minute troop movement of Japanese soldiers, Hong Kong volunteers, Canadian regiments and all those involved, or put your mouse on one of the many people's names and have a bio that tells you about them in more detail, such as the British Indian hero Captain Martin Ansari, who was executed and was awarded a George Cross medal. There's also a nurse at Stanley killed in the massacre. It's a superb historic effort coming out this week. This Sergeant Lee Kim Fai is actually one of my favourite uh, stories because he was, uh, he was trained as a, a Hong Kong Chinese gunner. He joined in the Royal Artillery in, in 1938. He was one of the earliest local Chinese who joined up uh, as a gunner in the Royal Artillery. And so when, when the war started, he, he was a fully trained soldier. He served in for three years in the British Army already. So he was a regular, he was not a volunteer. So he was the man who helped he and his comrade were, were, uh, were manning a searchlight at the entrance of the Stanley village in the evening of the 24th of December 1941. Their task was to light up the advancing Japanese troops and they lighted up the Japanese tanks as well and they helped the, the anti-tank gun nearby, there was a two-pounder gun next to the searchlight, to destroy the tanks. So the tanks were destroyed or damaged, and, and but the, the, amongst the, the Chinese gunners who mended the searchlight, only two survived. Others were all killed. So Lee Kim Fai was one of the survivors. So after the Battle of Hong Kong, he went to China, escaped from the Japanese occupation. And later on, he, he reported himself to the British Army Aid Group. So he joined the BAH, he, he joined it back. Lee survived the war, and later on, he became a driver. He, he did not get rich, he, he, he was not a prominent figure, but, but a story like this really tells the, 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 the collective story of more than a million of Hong Kong Chinese who may not have the, the privilege to write their own story.
So we will always have, always have to keep this in mind.、Uh, the more educated, the more the the richer people may have the luxury or have the knowledge or have the the ability to write about their experience. But but people like Lee Kim Fai might not have the chance. Dr. Kwong Chi Man of Baptist University talking there on the new Battle of Hong Kong 1941 interactive map project, which we can hear more about next week. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.